back to the voice of the child. What happens in child custody or contact cases when a mother says her child is being abused by her partner or she's been subjected to domestic violence herself? And what happens when that partner then counters the allegations by saying that he is a victim of parental alienation? Professor Joan Meyer has tried to answer those questions with America's first ever nationwide study, and the controversial findings have been reported on by several media outlets, including The Washington Post and The New Yorker. Her research has also reignited the debate around gender stereotypes and, significantly, the effectiveness of child protection processes which are meant to keep children safe. A professor of clinical law and the director of the National Family Violence Law Centre at the George Washington University Law School, Professor Meyer has received a number of national awards for improving legal responses to domestic violence and children in need. She was also a commentator for a PBS programme called Breaking the Silence, Children's Voices, which looked at the impact of domestic violence on children and their mothers. Professor Meyer, your research has attracted a significant response both in the US and the UK. What was the purpose of the study? I decided to do this study because I had been working at DB Leap doing appellate work on behalf of survivors and protective parents who were trying to keep their children safe in custody cases. And I was seeing a lot of disturbing things going on in the custody courts. And I had been doing trainings and scholarship and appeals on these issues and in particular on parental alienation. And it wasn't changing anything. So I decided there was a real need for data and as I embarked on this process of gathering data, I sort of thought to myself, you know, everything I know is anecdotal. It's my own experience. It's definitely what I'm hearing from all over the country as well. But who knows? Maybe I, we get all the bad cases and there's plenty of good cases out there and the data will tell us one way or the other. So the purpose was really to show whether, as it seemed to us, um, custody courts were really seeming to be biased against mothers who alleged abuse uh, and that mothers were losing custody at great rates um, and that parental alienation cross claims by accused uh, parents accused of abuse was a big part of the, the way that courts were denying these abuse claims. That the, the goal was to see whether that was accurate numerically and to do a very objective gathering of just observations. Here's what the courts, here's what's being claimed, here's what the courts are saying, here's what the courts are doing numerically. And how many judgments did you examine over what period of time and, and which courts did they come from? So in, the only way to get a national picture, which I was determined to do, was to go online. And um, in order to go online, we used various search engines like Lexis and Westlaw and Google and we spent a long time comparing and we did a very long, quite complex search string in order to collect every case that was reported online that involved child custody, possible abuse claims, possible alienation claims. And that was pretty much all. We, we screened out state cases, child welfare cases. We screened out same-sex cases only because we were trying to look at a gender analysis. Um, we screened out some cases where parents were in prison. There was a number of things we screened out, but basically your, your paradigm of one parent against the other, one heterosexual parent against the other, uh, one of them or both of them alleging abuse or alienation. We ended up with 15,000 cases. I know that was your question. We ended up with 15,000 cases in our initial data set and our coders who were two law graduates spent about a year or half a year triaging that number down to what we ended up keeping in the data set, which was 4,800 cases. Um, and then they spent another year coding all the cases, again, objectively reading the opinions to code who said what, who made what allegation, what did the court 
decide and what did the court do. Um, and it was complex because we coded many, many things, which we haven't even finished analyzing all the things we coded. So it took a very long time. But um, so far, the analyses that I'm going to talk about today and that I've put in, in, in publications have been the very basic questions about when do courts believe uh, parents' claims of abuse by the other parent and when, what do courts do in terms of switching custody? How often do they do that? And, and I should just say one more thing about numbers. The data set is, whole, is large. It's over 4,000. But... For purposes of the analyses here, it's a much smaller analysis. It's a little over 2,000 because um, we are focused on cases where there was a, custody, a, a claim of abuse and we're focused on cases where um, uh, there was a custody switch from one parent to the other. And anyone who's read judicial opinions would probably know that they're not the best at documenting the story of the case. And so we, we, there were a lot of cases that are in our data set where we couldn't tell who started with the children. And so we don't factor those cases into our analysis of custody switches. That's still a, a lot of data. And having read the, having read the reports, um, a lot of that data is quite complex. So let's start with the overarching view of that data. Okay, so the data was very confirmatory of the anecdotal experiences that we had been having and been hearing about. In this, in fact, it was much stronger than I ex even I expected. Um, what it showed, if you look at the broad picture of all the cases where there were abuse claims by women against men, and I'll get into the reverse in a minute, but when you start with those claims, um, overall, averaging out different types of abuse claims, which I'll talk about also in a minute, courts only believed a little over a third of women's allegations of abuse, 36%. That alone, when I shared that at one point in a meeting with a custody evaluator, she, she kept, she, she was like, wait, what? She couldn't believe that courts weren't believing abuse that, because there's a very widespread belief out there in the society and I think in the courts that all you have to do is allege abuse to get away with stuff. And on the contrary, courts are very skeptical of women's allegations of abuse. I'll add to that that um, uh, what, what we did not expect in this data, but what was really stark, is that courts are particularly skeptical of child abuse claims by mothers. They, uh, what we found in general was that courts believed 43% of mothers' partner violence claims, but only 21, or about a fifth, 21% of child physical abuse claims, only a little less than that, 19% of child sexual abuse claims. And then we found, we looked at mixed claims, mixed adult, mixed child abuse claims, and there were different percentages for that. But as a result of those very low rates, like one fifth uh, rates of believing child, child abuse claims, it averages out at around a third. But it's even lower than that for child abuse claims. So it's, it's very stark. And I think that information right there, that courts are very reluctant or very reticent to believe child abuse claims, is powerful information that everyone needs to know. Both any parent who's going to be alleging child abuse, but especially a mother, needs to know that. Um, and any evaluator or, or a guardian ad litem or judge should know there seems to be a bias against believing child abuse claims, as well as domestic violence claims to some extent, unless you accept the theory that 80% of women reporting child abuse are lying or are crazy. If you don't start from that belief, then we have a problem of a great deal of skepticism about women's child abuse claims. And what happens when fathers alleged abuse? We're flipping it over now. Um, so... I have a comparison 
of fathers, not so much on the allegations of abuse, I'm sorry to say. I have a comparison of fathers when we get to losses of custody. I don't know if you want me to leap into that yet or... Yes, yeah. that's fine, yes. Okay, okay so losses of custody, um, overall, uh, again, averaging out all the different types of abuse, women um, lost custody about 28% of the time when they alleged abuse against a father. Um, those rates were higher, again, when they alleged child abuse, uh, over a third of the time when they alleged child abuse. Um, fathers, by comparison, lost custody on average only 12% of the time, uh, a great difference from 28% of the time. And when they alleged child abuse, um, very little. Uh, it, it, the numbers are small here because we're looking only at the cases where fathers started with the children and the court records that and fathers alleged child abuse against mothers, which is a fairly small percentage. But we had six cases where they alleged child sexual abuse against a mother or, or the household of the mother. And they lost custody in two of those, which is about a third, um, which is similar to the mothers, but the mothers have a much more robust uh, set of cases. And in child physical abuse, they were 65 where they accused mothers of physical abuse. They only lost custody 11% of the time in those, whereas mothers lost custody 34% of the time when they accused a father of child physical abuse. So all of that, and then when they accused a mother of domestic violence, interestingly, you would think, and, and I think our data do show that courts are a little more skeptical of men accusing women of domestic violence, but they still only lost custody 14% of the time compared to 22% for women who alleged domestic violence. So um, it averages out at a much lower rate of custody loss. So what, what that implies, um, which is again consistent with the stories we hear in the cases I've reviewed, the many, many hundreds, probably thousands at this point of cases I've reviewed, is there's a punitiveness, there's a hostility to women who raise abuse claims, which is less evoked by men raising abuse claims. You also looked at cases in which fathers made claims of parental alienation after mothers had made claims of abuse or domestic violence. What happened in those cases? Okay, so that switches me back to a, a, a slightly different subset of the study. We did sort of the most important part of what we were looking at was that comparison of what happens in alienation cases and how does that compare to the non-alienation cases. So um, if you look at the belief of abuse claims, what we found was that when mothers alleged abuse but there was no cross-claim of alienation, um, they were believed... 45% of the time if you just looked at domestic violence, but when alienation was cross-claimed, that dropped to 37%. You see a much more stark drop when you look at child abuse. So without an alienation cross-claim, women were believed 29% of the time about child physical, but with a cross-claim of alienation, they went down to 18%. And child sexual abuse is where you see the most stark and the most really stunning impact of parental alienation, but also the stunning degree of skepticism by courts. They're already very skeptical in the non-alienation cases. They only believe women 15% of the time when there's no alienation cross-claim. But when there wasn't alienation cross-claim, they believed women 2%, which represented one case. So one out of 51 cases where mothers claimed there was sexual abuse of the child at the father's house, and the father responded with an alienation claim, courts only accepted the sexual abuse once. That's really stunning. Uh, findings. So it, it, it does indicate, consistent with, again, our anecdotal reports, that um, parental alienation is very powerful in reducing courts' willingness to believe abuse, that it's very linked, uh, that claim is very linked with the disbelief in abuse claims. And that's very important 
in, in a larger field of family law and family law practice because many people who teach and train and write about parental alienation are very insistent that it's not about abuse. It's not about disproving abuse. It's a much broader problem. And I understand that the theory is much broader, but what this research shows is that its power is particularly great when used against women accusing fathers of abuse. And that's not surprising because the whole theory of parental alienation syndrome was first invented as a way of refuting child sexual abuse. So you're seeing exactly that here, even though everyone is now arguing that what the courts are doing is not parental alienation syndrome, it's parental alienation, what they're actually doing is identical to what PAS called for, which is to disbelieve child sexual abuse and other child abuse claims. There are a lot of very interesting observations in the research, and, and one of those is that in non-abuse cases, the data found that alienation allegations had a more gender-neutral impact. Why do you right. think that was the case? Right. So in the cases where a mother was not claiming abuse, but a father was still calling her an alienator or vice versa. We found, we did find a relative equity in outcomes. Now we don't know if they were the correct outcomes, but, but the, the numerically it was very close outcomes in terms of what happened in terms of belief and in terms of custody losses. Um, and my, my thinking on that is very consistent with what I just said, which is that alienation is seen as a particular weapon and is used as a particular weapon against mother's claims of abuse. But when you get into alienation without that particular target of attack by the alienation claim, courts are able to be more gender neutral in their assessment of it. And they're able to just look at what is each parent doing or not doing that might undermine the other parent. Um, whereas in the abuse claims, everyone gets crystallized and kind of magnetized around the abuse claim as the sign of alienation. And um, so you see more gender neutrality or equity potentially in the non-abuse alienation cases. The research clearly highlights a scepticism by family law professionals towards mothers who claim abuse. Where do you think that scepticism comes from? Um, it is, that's a very good question. I, I think the best way I can answer it, honestly, is to invoke the Me Too movement. If you think back to the what that movement was about or is about, until we had that movement, it was normative to, to reject women's claims of sexual abuse or sexual assault on the job. It was just, you could dismiss it, you could say she's a liar, you could say she's pathological, or you could say, uh, you know, nobody else has ever said such a thing. You could just silence her in, a, in myriad ways by punishing and silencing people to make the cost too great for coming out. Well, that's kind of what's going on in families and in family courts still, because we have not had a Me Too movement that attaches to families and family court, although we need it. And this data and, and the larger protective parent movement is really trying to bring that. I think there's a very long history of denying women's allegations of violence by men against women and children. If you go back, you know, a hundred or more years, you're looking at a time when violence in the family was simply not ever acknowledged or recognized or admitted. Rape was seen as, you know, virtually impossible to prove because it was virtually virtually impossible to get corroboration and a woman's accusation could never be believed on its own. Um, child sexual abuse has always been that way in terms of how we respond to it. It's, and it's because it's shocking and horrific and people really deeply do not want to believe it. So I think we have a long history of silencing the realities of male violence against women and particularly in, and against children in the family. And we haven't come to terms with it yet. 
Uh, we've begun to in the larger world with the Me Too movement. We haven't come to terms with it in the family court setting or in families in general. And so you have this very polarized field where part of the field, the family law professionals often feel like women are lying. And I think that's just, maybe they, they've they met with a lot of men who are falsely accused, who claim to be falsely accused and they find these men sympathetic. And there are many, many things. I, I've spoken to women uh, who, who act as guardians ad litem, who, you know, purport to be very objective, but the minute you send them a case, they start shredding and deconstructing what's wrong with the mother. And I think that's a very common instinct, that it's easy to throw claims or, or accusations at women about what they've done wrong or why they're not credible. There's myriad ways to call women not credible. It's harder to attack men's credibility, and that's a long-standing social issue. It's not, you know, there's, there's not one particular problem. The other thing I'll add to the family court scenario is that there's a lot of money being made off of denying women's claims of abuse, um, getting parental alienation assessments, getting treatment for supposed parental alienation and what they call reunification treatment. There's enormous money being made. I think, frankly, if the money went away, if there was some way to make this all, I would like to see all of this brought, rolled into the court and only handled by salaried professionals who didn't gain by what the, they concluded. Um, I think we would see a more honest and objective assessment. I think there's a lot of stake in finding alienation. Some of the professionals, and most of them I think are very honestly doing the best they can and believe what they're saying, what they're doing, and believe they're helping families when they do it. Um, but they don't understand abuse. They don't necessarily really want to understand abuse the way those of us who work in the abuse field understand abuse. And there's just an ingrown skepticism. But um, some of them I think know what they're doing and are doing it intentionally. There are certainly lot loud and um, very active people in the field who are notorious for being somewhat bullying in the way that they write, in the way that they speak, in the way that they deal in court. And that kind of fits what we know about the denial of abuse. There's a lot of bullying that goes on in, in that process. One of the things that I kept thinking about when I was reading the research was that these decisions were being made by a very specific person, and they were the judges. Did you look at the gender of the judges whilst you were doing your research to see whether there was any correlation between the gender of the judges and the decisions being made? That's a great question. I get it almost every time I'm interviewed. <laughs> and unfortunately, we, we were not able to look at the gender of the judges because um, we were looking at published opinions and they say so-and-so, comma, J. So you don't get a first name and you can't tell the gender. And um, so we couldn't, we couldn't measure that at all. I will tell you anecdotally that I have seen as many harsh, skeptical female judges as male judges. I don't see much difference in gender, frankly. And I've seen some wonderful leaders in the field who are trying to help children who are male. So I, I don't know how far we can go with, with that. I think, I think a better way to look at it is, I mean, when we talk about racism among police forces, we often acknowledge that many of these officers are African-American. And there's a culture. There's a culture of disbelieving women. There's a culture of protecting men's rights in family court. Women are part of the culture too, um, or they're pressured to be part of the culture. There have been judges who've left the court and have talked about the pressure on them to not believe women and to protect men's rights. Um, it, I don't think it's the individual so much as the overarching sense of what's right and what's right is to protect father's rights in the, in the family courts. And, and that ideology is being carried out by women as well as men. Exactly. And why do you think women are willing to perpetuate that ideology? 
Um, I think many women, for potentially very legitimate reasons, feel that men have have not been treated fairly in courts and in the law when it comes to parenting rights. Um, I think historically there was a truth to that. Certainly women had uh, maternal presumption long ago. Uh, that's been gone for a very long time and um, doesn't seem to be operative anymore at all. Um, but there is a belief that men have never been given their due as fathers. That's one thing. The other one is that, I've, and I've written about this in other articles long ago, there's a really strong desire across society and within the courts to see more fathering in families. And so when men stand up and say, I want to be a father, courts want to reward that very much. And there's a real sense of that you're, you're a good merely for asking for, for equal parenting time. And there's a real resistance to believing that you might be asking for the wrong reasons because you want to abuse or because it's an extension of your abuse. So I think there's a real desire to protect fathers and fathering and to maximize fathering. And some of that is, you know, very, I'm sympathetic to, even though it's doing damage potentially. And some of that I think is um, gender biased probably, um, but who knows. Your research obviously focuses on cases in the United States, but it's had a phenomenal response here. Um, by way of an example, I published your research on my website and within minutes it went viral. I think on one platform, it's been shared over 3000 times and the engagement uh, with the research was significant. There were a lot of mothers who'd gone through the family courts in the United Kingdom who felt that the experiences outlined in the research really resonated with them. But there was also comment and engagement from fathers who'd gone through the court process uh, in the UK for various different types of hearings. Um, and, and one father posed a question. He said, well, surely all this research does is confirm that in this particular context, women are less honest than men. Do you think that there is room for that view within your research? My research leaves that wide open. Anyone can take that view. My research does not refute that view. The only way to refute that view is to look at um, outside research into the veracity of women's allegations of abuse. And there isn't a lot, but there is a actually surprising there's more than I would have expected. And particularly looking at child abuse and child sexual abuse, past research before parental alienation became a thing, um, found that women's claims of child sexual abuse were likely credible and definitely good faith in the vast majority of the time, but likely credible in 50 to 75% of the time. So, you know, half to two thirds of the time, outside evaluators who were not overly gullible and who were fairly conservative evaluators were finding that these allegations were credible at least. Um, uh, at a very, you know, half to more, uh, more than that, uh, the time. And what you see in this study is courts are believing it only 15% of the time. And when alienation is claimed once out of 51 cases, there is no way that that is reflecting truth. There's no way. And the other way to know is to talk to and interview the mothers about, or even look at things like our appellate briefs, DV Leaf's appellate briefs, where we detail the evidence of abuse that the court is choosing to reject. I've had case after case where there's multiple layers of corroboration of child sexual abuse. You have a kid acting out sexually. The police are, be, are being called against 
um, an eight-year-old because she's making she's being sexual with the, her classmates. Um, that's that's not a sign of, of coaching. That's a kid acting out. Uh, kids do that kind of acting out most often if they're sexually abused, not for many other reasons. And then this kid had hallucinations, and then and you know, uh, three out of four evaluators uh, who had expertise in child sexual abuse thought that. Um, there was a good chance she had been sexually abused. They never say for sure. But nonetheless, the court chose not to believe it and to believe a, a psychobabble theory about enmeshment and alienation and whatever, and um, chose not to listen to the expertise that was presented at trial on dissociation and how children respond when they're forced to be with an abuser. Courts are choosing not to believe what's right in front of their face in many of these cases. And if you get into the weeds of the facts and the evidence and the information, I think it becomes harder to just airily declare that these courts are all doing it right and all these women are lying. But yes, you can make the argument and the study does not refute that. <laughs> there are a lot of themes that emerge from the research, including human bias. Are you concerned that genuine allegations of child abuse are being ignored or overlooked because of judicial bias? Absolutely, but it's it's not judicial bias alone, it's judicial bias which is being encouraged and led by other professionals who are neutral court appointees like guardians ad litem or whatever you call them in the UK, um, or um, custody evaluators, um, sometimes parenting coordinators. There's a whole stable of psychologists usually, sometimes lawyers and other people who get appointed supposedly to advocate for the child or the best interests of the child. And they are misleading courts into denying abuse. and myriad studies of evaluators in the, in the U.S. and also, I, I believe, across the pond have found that these evaluators don't know enough about abuse and are quick to dismiss it for based on misconceptions and myths about what, uh, you know, how abuse looks and sounds when it happens. Um, a lot of the talk about alienation that's used to deny abuse describes behaviors that are commonly found in abuse families, and then they describe them as evidence of alienation. So there's been a whole co-opting of what we know about abuse under the rubric of alienation, and they slap the label on, and the courts go, oh, okay. The courts don't know better often. So I, you know, with regard to bias, I think there is some among the judges. I think there's probably more, however, among these professionals who are making money off of this. Um, and that's not the only reason. They believe what they're doing, obviously. Um, and there's a lot of bias and I think a lot of judges are being misled. And there was a great podcast I'll point your listeners to um, that was done by um, Reveal and it's called Bitter Custody. And it has interview, in one case it has a story about a, a children who were sent to a, a reunification program and cut off from their preferred parent who in that case was a father. And they're, they're interviewed with these children now that they're older and the judge is interviewed afterward and he says, oh my, I don't think we know what's going on in these programs. Maybe we should take a closer look. And that's my paraphrase. He says something else. But it's the, the gist of it is, is I had no idea. And that's what I think is happening with judges. They have no idea. They're being told by these psychologists that these are good programs and they should send the children there. They don't know what's actually happening. And now the children are aging out enough to be able to talk publicly about what happened to them there. And that's posing a bit of a problem for some of the programs, but it hasn't really filtered up to the judges yet. So unfortunately, family court is a place where a lot of junk science and invalid assertions, psychological and psychosocial assertions about treatment, about diagnoses, about labels are made. And courts don't know better. They don't know it's, it's unreliable. 
Now, I will say, going beyond that, that when they have an expert on the stand telling them it's unreliable, they often refuse to accept that. So there is some bias going on there, too. But I don't think it's necessarily mostly bias on, on the part of the judges. I think there's a lot of misleading going on. On the point of bias, we're seeing a phenomenon in the UK, which has been going on for, for quite some time now, where mothers who uh, speak to their legal representatives about domestic violence they are experiencing are often told or advised not to mention it to the judge at all, because it will lead to them losing custody of their children, or in, in England we call it contact, and not having that contact with their child, and in some cases being permanently separated from their children. This is obviously something that's happening here in the UK, and it's been happening for some time. Do you see similar advice being given to women in the US and what do you think of this practice? That's a very difficult question. Obviously my study confirms that this is happening in the courts. Women are losing custody which to us is they may or may not lose all contact but losing the care of their children is is very very significant Um, and they're losing it the most when they allege child abuse and there's a cross claim of alienation so it's happening. Whether the advice is being given about domestic violence I don't think so. However I do think it's beginning to be given around child abuse claims. Um, It's clear from this data that courts are less reactive and punitive about domestic violence claims. They also don't give them that much weight. (laughs) So it's less risky for women, but it also doesn't help them as much as one might hope with regard to safe custody. Um, But child abuse claims are very risky for women. I can't say I know it's happening a lot, but I have heard of cases here and there where lawyers have said it's too risky, you may lose your children. And I'm at a point People used to ask me this like 10 years ago. They would say, would you advise clients not to bring it up? And I would say, I don't really know. It would depend on the evidence. Well, now with, with this data, I would advise parents not to bring up child, women, not to bring up child sexual abuse unless there is, you know, eyewitness evidence or, you know, maybe a past conviction of the abuser. If all they have is a child's report and it's going to be a sort of a battle of the experts, and he's probably going to claim alienation, don't bring it up because it's your ticket to losing custody at this point, I would say. Child physical abuse is less clear, but it still seems pretty high risk. But child sexual abuse is the one where I think I would have to say that I would actually give that advice and say, here's what we know empirically your odds are of losing custody. In fact, I can give the odds here. Hold on. Sorry, I don't, I don't have the odds on that particular data point, but I have the odds earlier when it's not involving alienation. Um, Mothers have 2.5 times the odds of losing custody when they're alleging both physical and sexual abuse than when they allege child sexual abuse alone, for starters. Uh, So that mixture is really bad. Um, Mothers who allege child abuse by a father are at a one in four risk of losing custody to the alleged abuser. So it raises your risks. But what do women then do if they're genuinely concerned about their child, but they're being told not to mention it in court? How can they protect their children in those cases? Um, I'm sorry to say that the courts are making it very, very difficult, if not impossible, to protect children in these cases. And that's, you know, I have a client, I had a consult client recently, who I said, these are the data, this is what will happen if you don't win, and your odds of not winning are very, very high. And she said to me, I can't not fight for my children's safety. And I said, I hear you, I respect that, I just need you to know you know, the risk you're taking and be, be taking that risk with your eyes open. You know, Some women feel like that, that they have to act from their heart. Other women look at the risks and say, 
I have to act pragmatically here. If, if my children are going to be even worse off than they would be if I don't bring it up, I better not bring it up, even though I can't. it means I can't protect them completely. I'm protecting them a little bit from what would happen if I do bring it up. And it's a terrible, terrible um, uh, rock and a hard place for, for mothers who, who love their children. It's, it's unconscionable that we're doing this to mothers and children. I think there are very few cases worse, I think, than having to decide how you're going to protect your child in, in those sorts of circumstances. Or how you're going to have to let them not be protected. Exactly. To some extent, yeah. Now, you've been looking at these issues for more than 15 years and a PBS program you took part in about the impact of domestic violence on children and mothers specifically sparked heavy criticism when it aired in 2005, particularly from fathers and fathers' rights groups, which led to the PBS ombudsman at the time, Michael Gettler, stepping in and making a a judgment call on the documentary, uh, which wasn't very favourable, calling it a flawed presentation that diminished the impact and usefulness of the examination of a real issue by what did indeed come across as a one-sided ad advocacy program. How do you feel about Gettler's comments and the documentary 15 Years On? It was a very powerful documentary in particular because it was called um, Breaking the Silence Children's Voices and it focused on children. It had interviews with children, a film of children, one in particular I'll never forget, who was whispering from her father's house on the phone to her mother, get me out of here. And when you see that, you realize what mothers are being put through and what children are being put through in these cases, although, you know, you can write it off and say that was one case or these were four cases in this particular um, show. So here's what I think about that. It wasn't presented to be a neutral study like mine is. It was presented to, to give a perspective of what was being done to some children in some cases. And those things were being done to those children in those cases. And um, you could liken it to a story about the Holocaust interviewing survivors of the concentration camps and saying, well, you didn't interview any of the Nazis, you didn't interview the guards. Is this a fair depiction? It's a fair depiction of what the survivors experienced. There are some things that, you know, interviewing the other side, you're just going to get denial and obfuscation. Um, You can do that and and pretend to be balanced in doing that, or you can just say, um, uh, atrocities are atrocities, and here I'm describing some. How representative they are remains to be seen. So I don't think there was anything wrong with the documentary. I think the father's rights outcry was to be expected. I think PBS and the ombudsman were more shocked than they should have been. But I I think most of the world doesn't understand how vocal and aggressive father's rights organizations are and how much they seek to and often succeed in inflicting pain on those who work with Um, victims and advocate for victims and so they're very well organized they're very powerful sometimes and they threaten to sue all over the place and they have the resources to do it unlike most battered women who are completely out of money and don't have the resources to sue the bad evaluators etc so um so they have a lot of a lot of um intimidation power and so yeah so the ombudsman stepped up and and did his critique which i don't listen to a whole lot more than the father's rights people listen to my listen to that that documentary um what they did ultimately was a another show on the demand of the father's rights people and it was supposed to be kind of the other side but it was really it was more like a family court story of how we try to be balanced and fair and it did, it just whitewashed everything it didn't really go in either direction um it wasn't i don't even think it got much attention ultimately Your research raises a lot of concerns around the way these cases are handled. 
What can child protection professionals do to ensure that children are the priority in these kinds of cases and parents are not unjustly punished for trying to protect their children? I think child protection professionals absolutely need to shed the idea that parental alienation is what's happening when mothers allege child abuse. They need to just get rid of that. There is no science behind that. And even the current experts in alienation say that's not what it's about. I have yet to see any of them say it's being misused in that way to deny true abuse. But they're they're moving slowly in that direction, some of them, I think. And they say it's really not about child abuse claims. You have to evaluate child abuse on its, on its face. So everybody, family courts and child pro- welfare professionals, need to be taking the question of alienation, friendly parent, enmeshment, any of those labels out while they assess abuse. And they need to assess abuse based on expertise about abuse, not based on this kind of ideology that says women lie all the time and that that women are able to convince their children to 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 not only report false things but to emote false things and to hallucinate false things and to remember false things all of that stuff is been fabricated there's not much science behind it if any and yet the whole system is relying on this notion that it's so often false um we need real experts in sexual abuse and only experts in sexual abuse assessing sexual abuse um and i think we need real experts in family violence and domestic violence assessing all other abuse claims because child welfare professionals in particular have been very slow to understand how adult domestic violence radiates through the family and victimizes children inherently as well as often physically as well um I think child welfare professionals have been very slow to understand coercive control, which is a huge part of what we know about domestic violence and domestic violence perpetrators. Um, and often you don't have smoking guns and major injuries and broken bones, but you may have a lifetime of terror, an existence of terror that comes from the coercive control of this perpetrator. And child welfare professionals need, need to recognize that because that has profound implications for child safety, both in the moment and after separation, because the, the and it's usually the men, but the perpetrators who utilize coercive control are the most dangerous for not only adult victims, but for children, first of all. And second of all, children are much more at risk after their parents separate than when they're, they're, they're in a unified family, um, even if the perpetrator never laid a hand on the children. After separation, anyone who has been battering an adult or or utilizing coercive control is a much greater risk to children after separation. These are things child welfare professionals need to know. They need to focus on risk, not just what happened and what can we prove happened, but what do we know about the dynamics in the family that pose risk? And I don't see them doing that very much on this over here, certainly. Um, I don't know about over there. I think we, we have the same concerns here in terms of getting up-to-date, progressive, sophisticated, evidence-based information. Uh, and I think in a lot of ways, our systems are quite similar. You're going to be kept very busy over the next few weeks with your current research. But I wanted to ask you whether you had any other research projects uh, that you're thinking of carrying out and if we can have a sneak peek. <laughs> um I have so many things I want to write. Some of them are empirical and some of them are not. I need to get this data out more widely than it has been so far. I need to educate the child abuse field and I'm working on that uh, with regard to this data and other things, related things. Um, And I'm also trying to get out analyses and thinking and about why family courts are the way they are and, and how they can change and how we can change laws to help them change. 
In terms of future research, I um, have my eye on an incredible data set that is is managed by the Center for Judicial Excellence based in California, which has um, piggybacked on other people who had who had begun many years ago to collect to track child homicides uh, that were committed by a parent, um, usually in the context of separation or divorce. Um, and the Center for Judicial Excellence has been doing an amazing job of collating, uh, continuing to track these and to try to analyze how many them could have been prevented. In other words, how many of them were cases where a court knew, um, uh, was warned that, that a child was at, at serious risk from this parent. Usually the father, but not only. There are some other cases in there too. Um, and they've already identified, just based on media, uh, about 100 cases where these children did not have to be killed and the courts could have, could have protected them were on notice. But we haven't been able, we haven't had the resources to um, analyze the, all 700 and some, which they have in their data set now, or to more more thoroughly analyze the 100 that they've flagged. Um, and we desperately need research funding for that work. And I'm, I'm in my new center at GW, I'm going to be looking into finding funding for that, whether I do it myself or I do that in tandem with the center itself and some researchers we bring in remains to be seen. It's, it's, I, I couldn't do it hands-on. I'd have to hire someone anyway. But we need reporters as well as potentially lawyers who have some time to do some digging into these case files and um, be able to demonstrate what courts knew and when they knew it and and why they did or did not protect the child. Um, so I'm hoping that that's a new area of empirical research that we'll find the support to do. And then there's a lot of pieces of this data that we haven't analyzed yet, like visitation or even just looking at who ends up with custody without worrying about who started with custody. If we do that, we will be able to bring in a lot of, of the cases we had to screen out when we were looking at custody reversals. Um, and that's data that I think we need to get out. Uh, we need to look at visitation. We need to look at corroboration. We want to look at the child welfare agency cases and, and analyze what was happening in those. We want to do a more specific analysis of the child sexual abuse cases to see if we can come up with some qualitative as well as quantitative analytic um, explanations of what's happening in those cases. So um, there's a lot more to be done with this data set, which is incredibly rich and complicated. And and the, the other thing I'll say, if there are any U.S. listeners to your podcast, um, the data is all organized by state, and we very much hope that state researchers will download their set of cases. They can either use our coding or they can recode along the lines that they want to their cases. And most states, it's a manageable number. California, it's an unmanageable number, 500 plus, I think, cases. But um, most states, it's much, much less than that. And they, they can wrap their minds around it, and then they can do state-based analyses and use those for law reform. So I hope that happens too. If you had just one sentiment that you were able to share with child protection professionals, what would you say to them? I would say know where you have expertise and where you don't. If you don't have genuine expertise in child sexual abuse, make sure you get someone who's a true expert, meaning they have worked with children, they have been able to identify true and false cases, um, they can help you assess. Um, I would also say don't, um, don't use alienation or that kind of thinking to discredit allegations of child abuse. And in particular, do not use the fact of custody or access litigation as a reason to discredit reports to child welfare because it should be, be, I think, obvious that if a parent finds out 
the other parent is abusing the child, there is likely to be custody access litigation. That does not mean it's false. That does not mean it was fabricated for false litigation. On the contrary, it means someone's trying to protect the child. And I hope I would say to child welfare, I hope you will go back to your initial mission and purpose, which is to protect children and stop buying into the idea that you're protecting them by maintaining access with a parent they're afraid of and that they say has been hurtful to them. Mm-hmm.